Good evening. This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is an independent, eclectic, nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum, providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Is California governable? For nearly three decades, Democratic and Republican governors have experienced the combination of the state's growing social responsibility and its shrinking governmental authority. In tonight's program, four past governors of California join NBC4's Colleen Williams to discuss the future of governance in the nation's most populous state. This show was previously recorded on July 26 at the Music Center in conjunction with the Los Angeles Economic Development Corporation. everyone, I'm Colleen Williams. At a time when education, health care, and home ownership are in crisis here in the state of California, voters here in California are demanding more from their leaders. And tonight on this stage right here, four past governors of California will join me to discuss the future of this state. Is it possible or impossible for one person to manage the nation's largest state? What's wrong and what's right with the state of California? Is California governable? Drawing on their own experiences, Gray Davis, Pete Wilson, George Duke Majin, and Jerry Brown will explore how Californians can make this state better. But before we bring out the governors, let's take a look at the legacies of these four men. Our first guest is the 34th governor of the state. During his tenure, the Democrat appointed a significant number of women and minorities to this administration. Currently, he is the mayor of Oakland, and is the only one of our guests running for state office. Please welcome Jerry Brown. Our second guest is the 35th governor of the state. As governor, the Republican took a hardline approach to law enforcement and crime. He also signed California's first Assault Weapons Act. Please welcome George Duke Majin. As the 36th governor of California, our third guest had his hands full coping with California's massive budgetary problems. In his first year as governor, the Republican made the difficult decision to raise taxes and cut programs to help erase a $14 billion budget deficit. Please welcome Pete Wilson. And finally, our last guest tonight, the 37th governor of California. Throughout his tenure, the Democrat made education his top priority. He worked to increase accountability in schools and expand access to higher education. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Gray Davis. <laughs> Governors, we thank you. Let's begin the program by getting straight to the point. Is there anything wrong with California? Governor Brown. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you rephrased that question, uh, like, what's wrong with California? Uh, is there anything wrong? Obviously, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with all of us. But uh, California's got so many great things that I hope we're going to have a chance to bring that up. But obviously, we just look at education. The teachers aren't uh, respected. They're not paid enough. 
Uh, the schools don't have the creativity and the flexibility they need. I think they're not sensitive enough to the diversity of learning needs that uh, kids uh, represent and uh, so many different backgrounds. Uh, we've got a transportation system that is not up to the 36 million people that we have. Uh, we have an environment that is not adequately protected. Uh, in many parts of our urban California, we've got too darn much crime. So we've got enough problems to um, probably provide work for four more governors coming over the next uh, several decades. But all in all, I think the state is governable. Uh, I think it's fantastic. And even if we solve all the problems, somebody's going to figure out a bunch of new problems so they can run for office and make you feel better. <laughs> Governor Duke Majin, your thoughts on the subject? Well, we have major challenges, no question about it. And what's been driving it for years and years now is our growth in population. Uh, during the eight years that I was governor, the population grew by 25%. And it's continuing to grow year after year. And that, of course, puts tremendous pressure on all of the infrastructure in our state puts tremendous pressure on our schools because of all of the additional uh, children and uh, tremendous pressure on such things as our uh, health care systems in the state. And of course, in order to provide job opportunities for all of these people, we must work to strengthen the economy. We must uh, change the business climate, make it uh, a business climate that's more friendly because we have mostly now uh, medium-sized and small businesses that are operating uh, throughout, especially Southern California, but throughout the state. And uh, we have to, as government, uh, we have to make it easier for them to operate because that's where all of the jobs are to be created. And with more people employed, that means more revenue going to local and state government, and that means uh, more resources available to address some of those problems that I mentioned and that uh, Governor Brown mentioned. Governor Wilson, I see you nodding your head there. Yes, I agreed with much of what both Governors Brown and Duke Majin said. The best social program yet devised by man or woman is a job, something that allows the individual bread earner for the family or for both, as is more often the case today, to do something useful and put bread on the table, hopefully to save. In order to create the investment that in turn creates those jobs in this relentlessly growing state, we have got to do something to curb how costly it is to do business in this state. Taxes are too high. Regulatory burdens are a hidden tax, and that really needs to be addressed. And there are many other things that are necessary if California is to be competitive in producing the kinds of jobs that will be essential for this growing population. The other thing, again, is that we are failing to provide an educational system that will prepare not only a workforce for employment, but for citizenship. Thirty-five years ago, California had the best public schools in the nation. That is no longer true. Today, too many poor children are trapped in bad schools. That is inexcusable and intolerable. Governor Davis. I think my counterparts have covered all the problems. <laughs> uh, maybe they've left out a few. Housing is too high. 
Not enough kids are graduating. Uh, not enough kids are, are realizing their full potential. The wonderful thing about this state is how entrepreneurial uh, we are, how innovative we are, how creative we are. Uh, and I really believe um, the best thing we can do is to invest money in young people. And the best thing you can do, I think, is to find another human being, another young person that you can devote a little piece of your life to, an hour a week. Be a mentor, call them up, have lunch with them, be there for them. It's the single most important thing you can do as a citizen uh, to give hope, opportunity uh, to young people and to let them know there's someone outside their immediate family that cares deeply about their well-being. And whether it's an email, a phone call, a lunch, or a meeting, uh, your caring about them will make all the difference in how they turn out as human beings. Um, I know Governor Wilson felt very deeply about mentoring. Uh, we tried to carry that on. And my wife, is, who's here tonight, uh, really did yeoman's work and actually uh, won the uh, public sector uh, mentor award uh, in the nation. Tom Brokaw gave it to her. So uh, if there's one thing I want to say tonight is, yes, we have problems, but the solution lies in giving the attention, the support, the backing, and the love uh, that young people need to get them started on the right track. And the best way to do that is to be a mentor. Governor Dismajan, in reality, does the governor have that much influence over policy in the state if we're pretty much a one-party state and the governor's party is different than that of the legislature? Does the governor have that much influence? Are his hands pretty much tied? Well, the governor has a uh, tremendous amount of opportunity to, to provide a major impact on significant issues. Uh, certainly, it becomes more difficult when uh, the legislature is controlled by a different party from the governor. Uh, I experienced that for the entire eight years uh, that I was governor. I think, uh, Pete, I think you also experienced the same situation. And uh, that does make it uh, more difficult and more challenging. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the governor is the only one who is elected statewide in terms of uh, legislation and the legislature. So he has gone to the public. He has given his promises, his pledges, and the people have voted for him. And so he is carrying, uh, if you will, uh, the support of the public uh, when he takes over. And so then when he appoints all of the people in the executive branch of government, uh, a tremendous amount of impact uh, flows from that. And uh, if you've got a strong governor and if you've got public support, and you've got honesty and openness in government, uh, in my opinion, uh, the governor can have and, and should have a tremendous impact uh, on the state. Governor Duke Majin, thank you. We'll address that question of the other governors in just a few minutes. We're just getting started here this evening. Still ahead tonight, more with the governors, including tough questions about the upcoming special election. And members of the audience will get their opportunity to ask the governors their questions. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the California Governor's Summit. 
Governor Gray Davis, I put this question to you. There have been five elections in the past three years. Now California's face another election in just three months, a special election to the tune of $45 million. Is this how government is supposed to work? Um, I, I personally think uh, we should give the... <laughs> We should give the public a little time off, uh, a little respite from elections. I think the governor's idea um, to give reapportionment power to, uh, to judges is a good one. I support that. It's unclear whether that will be on the ballot or not, November or June. Uh, I think the uh, initiative to uh, so-called the balance of budget initiative is, is problematic because it overrules two votes by the public, Prop 98 to support public education and Prop 42, which I supported, to send the sales tax on gasoline away from the general fund and to transportation. So that's, that's um, I, don't, I don't see the urgency to vote on that in November, and I think if those uh, issues were postponed to, um, to June, you'd have a bigger turnout, uh, and those um, initiatives could wait the extra nine months. But the governor can call a special election. It's within his right. Apparently, he chooses to do so, and uh, the odds are we, we will have a special election. Governor Wilson, what about the notion of government living within its means? It's a very sound necessity and something that the legislature cannot begin to comprehend. <laughs> the reason we're having a special election is because the governor made a state of the state message in which he announced a, an agenda of bold reform, long overdue reform, not just reapportionment, but the spending cap, the Live Within Our Means Act, is essential. We have had for some time a requirement in the Constitution for a balanced budget. But you know, you can balance it here or here. And your spending should not be driven by the availability of revenue. It should be determined by legitimate, justifiable need. And if you exceed that with your revenues, that's nice, but most families don't spend every penny. They put some aside, either for the rainy day for an emergency fund or one-time capital expenditures. But if you find yourself continually having surpluses, time to cut taxes because it means you're taking in too much. So I would have to say that when we speak of the $45 million, we have had deficits now for about seven or about, excuse me, about four years that dwarf that to get rid of that it's a bargain. And there are other things on that special election ballot as well. What else is on the ballot that you're in favor of? There is a ballot measure called Paycheck Protection. What it says very simply is that if you're a member of a labor union, neither your employer nor the union can compel you to make an involuntary political contribution. Instead, they have to ask your written consent. Now, about 200 years ago, a man named Thomas Jefferson said that take a man's money, and today he would say a man or a woman's money, for political purposes in which he does not believe is both sinful and tyrannical. He was right then, and it's right today. Governor Brown, do you agree with a special election? No. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. One problem is that the governor hasn't been in office all that long because of the recall. So then to have an election, 
then a recall, and then a special election, and then a regular election really overloads the system. I'm not saying there shouldn't never be one, but I don't think the crisis has been sufficiently uh, substantiated that justifies this thing. Now, in this so-called paycheck, some people call it paycheck deception, or some people call it paycheck protection. Here's the point. I agree. You shouldn't force people to spend money for something you don't believe in, and you don't have to. You just have to tell the union, and they, they cannot spend your money. Uh, you get refunded anything they spend on politics. You don't have to be part of that. Uh, so we do have protection for, for those people who object to political funding. The fact of the matter is, in this country, you have corporate money, and nobody asks the shareholders, or you have union money, and there you can, you know, it's a balance. So you have different interests. And I think it's that diversity of interests that guarantees democracy. And this is an attempt by one group, corporate powers, to take out of the game uh, their often adversaries, uh, the unions. And I think you need both voices, both voices, loud and effective and grassroots, to have a really strong democracy. Can we agree to disagree on this one? I guess so, but I would add one more requirement, and voluntary. And it isn't voluntary, and Jerry, you can't just ask for your money back unless you're willing to wait for about two or three years and spend at least $15,000 on a lawyer to file a complaint to get it. No, I, can't, I have to disagree with that. It's no. Right now, <laughs> and particularly under the Bush administration, they're really cracking down on unions. They make them file report these uh, M30 reports or whatever they are. They, the unions have to show everything they do by way of lobbying, organizing, political activity. It's all in black and white. And you can get the percentage back from your dues that would go to causes that are not related to organizing or representation. So I think you have protections. If they're not being adequately enforced, enforce them. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and totally unbalance the system so that the, the corporations can spend hundreds of millions and there's no voice on the other side to let the people know there's two sides to the questions. No, they can do it voluntarily. Well, let's move on a little bit here. Governor Duke Majin, how do you stop deficit spending and should you force budget cuts across the board when there are lean years? Well, to begin with, a very necessary major reform in the whole budget process is that right now you have a lot of formulas that are built into the law to increase spending every single year without any reference to or relationship to what the revenues are going to be. So you have a set of laws that require mandated increases in spending with no relationship to what the revenues are. Those mandated increases, those formulas, they ought to be eliminated. And then you should be able to prioritize recognizing what your estimate is for the year in terms of your revenue. Now, if along the way during that fiscal year, if it begins to appear as though the revenues are not coming in as they were estimated, uh, the governor should be given the authority to reduce expenditures. That used to be the law in California, but that was changed. And it's a good idea to have some limitations on, on how much can be increased. For example, during the years that I was governor, there was at that time what was called a GAN spending limit that was adopted as a vote of the people, a proposition, and uh, during one of our years, uh, we actually returned a billion dollars 
uh, to the people because we had more revenue that had come in over and above what the required uh, minimum ex expenditures were. Governor Davis, you agree with this? Well, we had to give back a billion too one year. So I, I agree that there are so many constraints on what the governor and the legislature can do. It's not as if they have a free hand. I mean, there's been 34 initiatives passed since, uh, since Prop 13, all of which send sometimes conflicting signals to the governor and the legislature. One thing I think would help enormously, and every governor up here will acknowledge this, in good times, the pressure by both parties to dispose of available money is unbelievably strong. Republicans to reduce taxes, Democrats to start new programs. In good times, and there will be good times, and in inevitably there will be bad times. In the good times, we just have to put aside money that can only be spent for very limited purposes, maybe capital projects, maybe tax relief, but th there has to be a buffer for the bad times. Uh, and we would go a long ways towards reforming our budget problems in Sacramento if we said, okay, uh, the state can grow three, four, five percent, uh, whatever the average has been over the last three or five years. And if we have more revenue than that, then it goes into a special fund that's set aside for bad times. A portion of that fund, maybe a third of it, could be used for one-time projects. Until we get the notion that we can't use every disposable dollar in good years for new programs or tax relief, we're never going to solve this problem. All four of the governors talked about how important business is to the state of California. When we come right back, we'll discuss business, how important it is to the state, especially when we talk about bringing the luster back to California. We'll be right back. back to the California Governor's Summit. The state has always been one of the largest and most prosperous markets in the world, but many business owners now say they simply can't afford to do business in California. It's just too expensive, especially when you factor in workers' comp. Governor Wilson, what can we do to attract business to the state of California and make it more attractive? When I first came to office in uh, 1991, I asked Peter Uberoth and 18 other Californians to sit as a council on California's competitiveness, to come back with specific recommendations for legislative and for administrative change. What they brought back made good sense. It was not a revelation, because we knew what was wrong. Finally, when we had some bipartisan support, and that took about three years, we were able to drive the fraud out of workers' compensation. Overnight, the premiums fell 40%. And before that, if you were in the roofing business, you were paying about 50 cents premium for every dollar of payroll. That's just one example. But there are two steps at least. You have to fix what's wrong. What's wrong with taxes? What's wrong with regulation? What's wrong with hidden costs and those that are explicit, like workers' comp, that really do drive people to open their businesses if they have more market share and go somewhere else rather than expanding in California? Once you have fixed what's wrong, then you aggressively market, which is what we did. We undertook that with one of the recommendations of that council, and it was a trade and commerce agency 
that made it its business to provide for regulatory relief when someone expressed interest in coming, we would go to the local community that they had targeted and say, these people want to get into your community. You're not making it easy for them. They are bringing jobs, or will if you let them. And we also had trade offices, which were begun overseas in Governor Duke Majin's administration. They were a bargain. They cost maybe a million and a half dollars a year to operate, and they brought us import and export business that was a very substantial addition to our ability to provide jobs. But how do you attract business when the median price of a home in the state of California now is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars? In LA County alone, Riverside County, it's well over $400,000. Orange County, it's over $500,000. We're talking half a million dollars for a starter home. How do you attract businesses and get them to bring their employees in? Governor Brown. Well, you can't bring down housing prices by government fiat, and if you did, you'd be thrown out of office. <laughs> See, this is the problem. Every plus has a minus. Now your house is worth a lot more, but now she's telling you to feel guilty because you're discouraging business in California. <laughs> Let me look at the guilty faces out there. I don't think so. So we can just solve that one right off the bat. Housing prices going up if your homeowner are good. Um, now, what do we do? I think you have to improve the opportunities for bringing out the best skills of the people. Skilled workforce. I was in, visited Google the other day. Uh, that's prime real estate up in the Silicon Valley. They have thousands of people. They're very bright. Uh, they're competing. So I don't know that we can make it through austerity, but we can improve our chances through sustained creativity, intelligence, and bringing up the whole level. Those at the bottom, those in the middle, those at the top, and getting the most out of, out of our people. So I think what government can do is to do a much better job in the training education system. Uh, that's one thing. And secondly, I know as a mayor, I've, I've been attracting business and investment. Uh, they're cutting the regulations are important, but every regulation serves somebody's interests. You know, you don't want the neighborhood to change, or you have certain um, social interests that you want to protect, uh, environmental interests, all that costs money. So in California, uh, we have a high standard of living, we have a high standard of desires that we call needs, and there are a lot of people who are going to enforce those needs at the highest cost. So that's hard to deal with. We can't compete with China where they pay them 10 cents an hour or 20 cents an hour, and they don't worry about the environment. So the only way out is we've got to fix the schools, fix the transportation, and uh, hopefully we can keep the interest rates down and get everybody to realize business does create the wealth and minds and skills of people uh, create that wealth for business. So we all understand that, and if the Republicans and Democrats can get, to, get together and try to work on real problems instead of just game-playing uh, polarized rhetoric, I think we'd get somewhere. Governor Duke Machen, Governor Wilson talked about incentives, Governor Brown talked about jobs, uh, transportation, education. Anything else to attract business to the state of California? Well, a, a change of attitude on the part of governmental agencies, local government as well as state government. Uh, when you are trying to enforce certain laws, rules, and regulations, you can either take a punitive approach or you can take an approach where you go to the owner or the business person and you say, look, 
this is what the laws are, these are the rules and regulations, we will assist you in getting through this process, rather than having the businesses uh, spend tremendous amounts of money, having long delays before they can get the necessary permits and permission to operate, uh, that would be a tremendous change, just to change that, and, and that, that word could spread rapidly, that uh, this community or this state is really interested in trying to be of assistance to the business community. That would go a long way toward helping. And the converse is true as well you can get a reputation for being either indifferent or even hostile to job creation. That's fatal. Governor Davis. Um, I think we have to fix what's wrong and uh, nothing ever changes. I had to sign two worker comp reforms. Arnold had to sign two worker comp reforms. So you have to constantly stay on it and we're beginning to see those rates come down now. Uh, I remember building, uh, contributing to the building the Alameda Corridor which greatly helps our ports. We're blessed to be the largest port in the United States, Long Beach, Los Angeles, here in Southern California, and about half the goods that we transport are going to people beyond our borders. So we need to improve our transportation system. The Alameda Corridor puts trucks below ground, reduces pollution, gets them off the roads. Those are good things to do. But we also have to look at what do we do really well and market that. And Alan Greenspan told me once, California will always do well because you have more research universities than any other state. If you count SC, Stanford, and Caltech, and the nine UC campuses, you have 12. He said Massachusetts has seven. No other state has more than six. Uh, one third of all the employees in biotech are in California. In five years, you'll see so many products come out of all that science and innovation, products uh, invented here, we will get the revenue and the jobs. So that's not for the entire population, but that's something we can do that the rest of the country has trouble doing. So in addition to fixing some of the day-to-day -day problems, which we should do, whether you're a two-person business or a 200-person business or a 2,000-person business, we also should recognize what we can do really well and continue to invest in that. Let me ask you this. Should the governor and the lieutenant governor run on the same ticket and be of the same party? I bring that up only because Lieutenant Governor Cruz Bustamante spoke to a group of trial lawyers on July 16th and said that he hadn't spoken to the governor in a year, not even a phone call. <laughs> if the governor and lieutenant governor are not working together, isn't that a wasted resource, Governor Dumajan? Well, in my opinion, the lieutenant governor should be on the same ballot with the governor. They should be elected together. They should campaign together. And when they get elected, then the governor can rely upon the lieutenant governor to help out in the administration. Uh, being governor is a big job. It's a very, very demanding job. But when you've got the lieutenant governor of a different party from the governor, then it isn't uh, so easy to ask that person to try to uh, carry out and to try to implement the policies of the governor. Uh, we see, for example, where at the federal level, the vice president and other states, lieutenant governors, uh, can be of enormous help. Right now, the lieutenant governor under the law doesn't really have very much to do. And so when th that person is of a different party from the governor, you just don't have full use of uh, that potential resource. Governor Davis, your reaction to that? Uh, I think Governor Machen is right. And I'm someone who served as lieutenant governor when Pete Wilson was governor. I'm sure he wished uh, <laughs> he had someone else there. I was touched by your asking every morning about my health. <laughs> Ideally, the state would operate the way the White House does, where you have a, a president and a vice president committed to the same agenda. 
Having said that, every time you ask the public in California the question, should we make sure the governor and the lieutenant governor of the same party, they say no. They want the right to determine who the lieutenant governor is. And as long as they feel the lieutenant governor should be someone they choose, we will continue to have uh, occasions where the governor and lieutenant governor are of the same party and of a different party, depending on who they think should be in the number one spot and the number two spot. We'll be right back. program started tonight, members of the audience stepped up with questions for the governors. We've selected a few of them. We've invited them to the stage to ask the question. First up, we have Pat Monson, and this is a question for Governor Duke Majin regarding Homeland Security. Pat. Good evening, governors. Um, what suggestion do you have, Governor Duke Majin, to secure our ports, rail, and bus transit systems in California in light of the recent terrorism in Europe, North Africa? and the previous terrorism here in the States? Well, obviously, this is a very, very serious situation that we're confronted with nowadays in our country and in our state. Fortunately, uh, the federal government uh, has stepped up, as well as uh, state governments. Individuals and uh, offices have been created uh, to try to deal with these problems as uh, much as possible. Uh, yet we realize that uh, there's tremendous exposure, and we're seeing this in the past couple of weeks in uh, other uh, places like London and in Egypt and so on. Uh, we just have to continue uh, to do the very best that we can to uh, provide as much protection and safety for people as possible. It is extremely difficult because of the millions of people using all these forms of transportation. It's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to protect everybody, but you can, to a great extent, try to harden the target as much as you can. You can, by training of uh, law enforcement and other personnel, uh, do as good a job as possible, and uh, if the public I itself uh, keeps alert and uh, reports any uh, acts of uh, suspicious nature uh, to law enforcement, uh, uh, the public it's, will be helping to protect itself in the process. Thank you, Governor. Jean Miao, this question is for Governor Brown, and the subject is property tax reform. If you could step up to the mic, please. Do you, Governor Brown, think property tax reform would benefit the economy of California? And if so, what would it take to make that happen? Are you talking about property tax, i.e. repealing Proposition 13? Exactly. Governor Brown. Well, <clears throat> first, people ought to recognize that the property taxes are generating a lot of revenue. Some people say, well, because the 13, there isn't enough money, but because property has uh, appreciated so much, it is generating a lot of money. Now, certain property owners, like large industrial users, uh, they keep the same property uh, unchanged in the form of ownership for 30 years, and therefore their taxes are disproportionately low. Uh, 30 years ago, before 13, there was the homeowner contributed a smaller percentage of the overall property tax, which is composed of industrial, uh, apartment owners, 
commercial, agriculture, and homeowners. So I think that balance could be made fairer uh, if you made some revisions uh, to the way assessments are carried out in terms of businesses. But uh, you have a hard time because 13 is some kind of an icon. Uh, I know I was governor when it came along. Uh, <laughs> most people forget that I wrote Proposition 13. <laughs> no, that's not true. Uh, I opposed it, but after, after it was over, I said, uh, okay, I get it, and I'll implement it. And so a lot of people <laughs> began to think that I actually made the thing work. Um, but it's got a lot of problems, and it is a hot potato politically, so I'm not going to say any more than that. <laughs> could I, Clearly, could I Governor, a, you're a quick study. Uh, Governor Duke Majin. Yeah, I, I'd just like to make a comment on, on the question and, and on uh, making any change. We, we were talking earlier about the importance of creating a good business climate to create jobs for all the people who keep coming here. Well, one of the ways to create an anti-business climate is to split the tax roll, to begin to increase the taxes on business, the owners of property, and so on. That would be another a disincentive for businesses to want to stay here or to come to this state if once that, it, that change is made, then the legislature uh, would probably be able to increase uh, the property taxes or local governments would on businesses uh, year after year, and uh, that again would discourage businesses from locating here and creating job opportunities. That whole idea... That whole idea of a split tax roll has been discussed and debated for years and years, and uh, in the final analysis, it's just not a good idea in, in terms of the economy and in terms of job creation. And the impact would fall most heavily on small business owners. They would uh, be the least, least able to afford that. Well, look, the problem is no tax feels good. Uh, it, if you, if you want less of something, then you tax it. That's really what Governor Duke Major is saying. The trouble is, there are some revenue needs, and where do you get it? And, and that's really the dilemma. Uh, so, I mean, I understand the point. Anytime you increase the burden of any activity, whatever you call it, uh, you're going to put a damper on that activity to some degree. Uh, so there it is. But if you take that philosophy too far, you just keep cutting everything, and then where, well, would, where would we be then? No, there, there are other ways to raise revenue, and uh, this might surprise a lot of people, but in California, we now have six legally authorized ways for people to gamble, to wage, to make wagers, and we have horse track racing, we have off-track betting, we have card clubs, we have bingo, we have Indian casinos, and we have the lottery that was voted on by the people. I opposed the lottery when it was on the ballot because I didn't want state government to be promoting gambling using state funds, and you have to promote the lottery in order for it to be successful. However, the people voted for it. Now, in my opinion, uh, the state and local governments are losing tremendous amounts of money
by just allowing those few who have already been authorized to conduct gaming activities, and in my view, the state ought to open up gaming under a gaming commission, and that local and state governments uh, then would split the revenues. We could get about 25% of the revenues that are, that are wagered. Some people don't like to pay taxes, but it seems as though a lot of people like to gamble. <laughs> and, and right now, it's just the Indian casinos that are benefiting, and local and state government is not benefiting, and we could raise literally billions of additional funds that could be used for all of these other needs that we've been talking about and to do it more or less in a voluntary way. Governor Davis, this next question is for you. It comes from Diana Tellefson, and the topic is immigration. Is what? Immigration. Immigration. Excuse me. Governor Schwarzenegger uh, recently praised the Minutemen. How do you recommend that he address the issue of undocumented immigration in a more positive and realistic manner? When I was governor, I felt the need to, to, to show respect to our only international neighbor, Mexico. And so I took my first trip down to see then-President Cedillo 28 days after I was governor. I believe people should come into this country legally, but I believe we should treat every human being who's here with dignity and respect. And I think... <laughs> this is a very complicated and emotionally volatile issue. The reality is, however they got here, there are a lot of people here who are not here legally, who are picking our food every day in the fields and doing a lot of jobs that many Americans say they won't do for the wages that are currently offered for them. So that, whether you like it or not, adds up to an economic benefit to the rest of us. Now, maybe some people will say, well, I don't care if it's an economic benefit, I don't want anyone here who's, who's not here legally. It's just a very complicated situation I think the best result would, first of all, it has to be negotiated at the national level, but the best thing the governor can do is to make constructive suggestions to President Bush, to uh, President Fox, and other international leaders as to how there could be some sort of um, work program where if there are legitimate needs in this country, people can come in, fill those needs. If those needs uh, are no longer uh, exist in some time that people go back to the country. While they're here, they would be treated with all the rights and privileges of uh, someone who was here legally. But somehow, we have to regularize a system that is out of control. Now, I can tell you, if you go down to the border tonight, you will see hundreds of people crossing the border illegally. That is true under President Bush. It was true under President Clinton. It was true under President Reagan. It'll be true under the next president. So we have a lot of inconsistencies and, and uh, if you will, hypocrisy that we live with in this country. I don't have the answer, but I do know that it takes a lot of rational people getting together and as best we can try and strip this thing of emotion on both sides of the equation and say, what's good for America? What's good for Americans? Do we need extra workers to help our economy grow? Okay, if we do, how do we get them in this country? How do we treat them uh, appropriately while they're here? And if we don't need them anymore, how do we uh, allow them to go back to their country? That, that's the way I think you have to approach the problem. Governor Davis, thank you. Our next question is for Governor Wilson. It has to do with the initiative system, and this is Nathan Dapier. Governor Wilson, 
how has the initiative system affected the way the governor's office sets policy and the relationship between the governor and the legislature? Well, it depends on whether or not the governor and the legislature are simpatico, whether they share the view of what is necessary. It is perfectly legitimate, I think, for governors as well as anyone else to make use of the initiative process in order to achieve change which they feel is desirable and which, he, which they feel cannot be obtained through the legislative process. And in fact, it has been used uh, time and again, not simply by the current governor, but by many. I used it, so did, uh, so did a number of other governors. I think that you have to recognize that it was conferred upon us by act of the people. They voted to amend the Constitution some years ago at the urging of Hiram Johnson and gave us recall, initiative, and referendum. Those are not to be used lightly, but they are necessary, and certainly in the case of the initiative, it's a remedy for legislative default, and the decision is put to the public. Now, can initiatives be abused? Of course, and certainly some have. And unfortunately, as we have grown into a mini-nation, the role of money is more and more important because of television and the fact that too many people shape their views <coughs> or allow them to be shaped on the basis of 30-second television spots, many of which are flagrantly and flatly dishonest and deliberately misleading, which are watched as they're interspersed with people's favorite sitcoms, and they get their decision-making information from these spots that they see from Thursday to Sunday before the election. That's not the way to achieve an informed voter. And sadly, people who trouble to register, who trouble to vote, don't trouble to inform themselves, and we sometimes make the ballot pretty impenetrable. But it is a fundamental necessity, I think, and I've voted for and against initiatives and will again Yes, they can be abused, but we would be much worse off if we did not have that remedy for legislative default. Let me piggyback your question, because I think this is an example. Governor Davis mentioned Proposition 187. It passed in California by almost 60% at a time when the Republican registration was in the low 30s. In other words, there were a great many people, liberals, conservatives, Democrats, independents, as well as Republicans, who thought that the system was, to use Governor Davis' phrase, out of control. It was. And as he pointed out, it still is. It is the result of federal failure, and a succession of both administrations and Congresses have not dealt with the issue, and therefore state taxpayers wound up being stuck with the problem and, by the way, with the costs, which are very substantial. In 1994, when it was on the ballot, we were, at that point, dealing with a budget that was much less than it is today. But a big chunk of it, proportionately, was being mandated or imposed by the default of the federal government to accept its exclusive responsibility, because constitutionally, States cannot put troops on the border, cannot block access. That is a federal responsibility under a treaty. And the point really is, yes, I would agree, we need a carefully drafted and regulated guest worker program 
so that people who are willing to work here can come and do so as they used to without staying and then can return. But I must tell you what we do not need is amnesty because we've tried it once and it was a failure. Instead of doing what it was intended to do to encourage people to stop coming illegally, it has provided incentive for them to do so. And this country was built by immigrants. Three of my four grandparents were immigrants. And we have a proud history and a tradition in this country because it's been built by the sweat, the energy, the guts of people who came and struggled to come here for a better life for themselves and their families. But there is a right way and a wrong way to come. Legal immigration should not be confused as it was in Proposition 187 with illegal immigration. We have a situation that has gotten worse, not better, and we need to address it. Thank you very much. Governors, thank you. Education, is it a crisis situation in the state of California? We'll talk to the governors about that when we come right back. You are listening to a special broadcast of Zocalo, conversations with four past governors of California, Ray Davis, Pete Wilson, George Duke Magian, and Jerry Brown, sharing their insights and experiences in the Statehouse with NBC4's Colleen Williams. More discussions regarding education, energy, and pledges of state government reform when we come back. This is 89.3 KPCC Pasadena, Southern California Public Radio. back to the California Governor's Summit. In the past few years, most school districts have had to make cuts to programs and to staff in order to keep going. Governor Brown, what is wrong with the education system? And if you had to fix it, what would you do? Uh, first of all, when you talk about the system, that's pretty big. That's six million students in the public schools. There are many good schools and there are a lot of bad schools, but more good schools than bad schools. And there are a lot of mediocre schools. So you have a lot of different things going on. Uh, with very poor kids in some of these hardcore neighborhoods, you have 60, 65% dropout, and the kids are not identifying with literacy, with math, with science, with the path that would take them to college. There has to be some way to provide some alternatives, not to diminish their uh, development of skills, but to give some kind of te technical education uh, vocational training, uh, apprenticeship programs, something that is concrete enough that can really grab the imagination of these kids. Schools are not uh, responding to the different learning uh, styles and ways and needs of uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of our kids. Is so that we up need to the governor or is that up to the school districts or is that up to the cities? Well, that's an interesting question. The trouble is that we always, we got governors here, so you want our governor answer. Uh, <laughs> governors spend money, answer. governors with the legislature spend money and sign laws. Then we mandate everything. And I can tell you, as governor, I signed a lot of laws on education. We all probably signed a thousand each. 
But what's really going on? Now I'm in Oakland. I've started two charter schools, one a school for the performing arts and one a, the, the Oakland uh, Military Academy, which, and they're both college prep schools. Well, now I realize this is complicated stuff. You need very skilled teachers. You need skilled superintendents or principals. Uh, you've got to find a building. You have all sorts of problems that go on. This is a very challenging environment. And then we have all these rules and regulations that come down from the federal government, no child left behind, and we got all these tests. Kids now take, as, take tests as long as we had to take the bar exam to become lawyers. And they start them out in the second, first grade, second grade. I mean, it's a crazy system. So, I'll put just to make it simple, education has to be very diverse. You, you can only have a certain amount of mandates coming down. You need more money in the system, but you need more flexibility in the system so uh, local parents, local uh, voters can hold the people who run the show accountable. Now, if they're going to be accountable, they've got to have some authority. So some people don't like flexibility and authority. Other people don't like spending more money. And that's why it's hard to get anything done, because you need both. More money without change really won't make a difference. Uh, change without really rewarding teachers for the tough job and the important job they do, that's not going to work either. So I think you need more investment, but a, a, gr a greater authority on the part of the people running the show. And I would say local districts and local schools do need uh, more authority. And I think we've reached, in fact, we've gone past the effectiveness of mandates coming down from Washington, let alone from Sacramento. Governor Duke Majin, do you think throwing money at this problem will fix it? That's not the sole answer, quite obviously, because in every school district, uh, you'll have some schools that are exemplary, some that are mediocre. And when you take a look at the exemplary school, you invariably find that it is exemplary because it's got a very highly well-qualified principal who provides the leadership for the administrators, for the teachers, and involves the parents of those, of those children. And so I, I would say, in addition to a, a myriad of things that, that need to be addressed, I think one of the things is that we should have a much more effective, intense way of training people to be principals of schools so that they can get that kind of leadership ability. The other is that where you've got this very, very high dropout rate, especially in inner city schools, uh, there has to be more incentives provided for the very best teachers to teach in those schools and to stay there to help that principal uh, to be able to give uh, the encouragement for those young people to stay in school and to uh, uh, get sufficient education, hopefully to go on either to vocational or to higher education. But what happens now is a lot of the newer teachers that aren't all that qualified are sent into the inner cities. They stay there a few years and they move out as quickly as they can. We've got to provide more incentives for good teachers to stay there. You talk about the dropout rate. Let's get specific on that. A recent study from Harvard showed nearly half of minority students in California dropped out in the year 2002. It's even worse in the LA Unified School District. Only 39% of Latinos graduate, 47% of African Americans, fewer than half. Governor Wilson, what would you do about that if you were running the school system? Well, for one thing, I would strongly encourage the passage of legislation 
speaking of accountability, that would permit mayors to be the ones running their city school districts. The examples of success are quite abundant. Mayor Daley was one of the first to try it in Chicago. Now, Mayor Bloomberg in New York, the mayor of Boston, Cleveland. If you want accountability, you look to the person who is the local elected official who is visible and give him or her responsibility. And if you do and hold them accountable, then you will see change. And the kind of change that we're talking about, that Governor Duke Majin was talking about, is not easy, but it is possible and it is absolutely essential. There is a school in the Los Angeles Unified School District called the Fauché Learning Center. Well, it is one now, but it wasn't always. Before Howard Lappin came there, it was a disaster, a nightmare. There was no order, there was no discipline, and frankly, there was no learning. He changed all of that by the force of his personality, by setting standards and by demanding that everyone, faculty and students, meet those standards. And I could not agree more with the idea that we need to give special training to principals, and frankly, we need to remove people who are not performing, whether they're principals or classroom teachers. <laughs> And conversely, we need to recognize and reward those who, in fact, are exceptional teachers. It is a strange thing that the teachers' union fights the concept of merit pay. They fight the concept of charter schools. Uh, I commend Mayor Brown for his initiative in creating two charter schools. I think we ought to have no cap on the creation of charter schools. And with respect to the observation made by Governor Duke Majin about principles who involve parents, there was something on the ballot, an initiative measure called Proposition 8 in 1998, which unfortunately did not pass. One of its provisions would have permitted that in every school there would be a teacher-parent council advisory to the principal to help with matters of budget and curriculum. Now, that is, frankly, still a good idea. And basically, though, you do have to have accountability. Your question to Governor Duke Majin was, would you just throw money at it? No. Money is part of the solution, but it is by no means all of it. Right now, we don't require a great deal in the way of preparation to become a classroom teacher. We put kids who have just graduated through a credential experience that is largely an exercise in pedagogical technique. When the LA Times conducted a survey some years ago of those who were teaching physical sciences or mathematics in California's classrooms, they found that less than half had even minored in the subject that they were teaching. No wonder our kids do poorly. I mean, the ones, the teachers that you remember who made a difference in your life really shaped you. We're not only loved to teach kids, but we're passionate about the subjects they were teaching. Very quickly, Governor Davis, your feelings on merit pay for teachers and holding teachers and principals responsible for students who perform and don't perform? Well, I, I believe in accountability, and I was pleased to be the first governor to pass the Accountability Performance Index, which every school knows about today, because we rank every school from 1 to 10, and then we rank them 
1 to 10 based on schools with similar demographics. And our theory was every school could get better, every teacher could do a better job, every principal could be more motivating. So even if you were the worst school in the state, you were one and you were one on the second uh, classification, you could still get better. And we had merit pay, well, we had money. We would give money to the whole school if they exceeded the uh, improvement goals we set for every school. So uh, I do believe that uh, the two most important people in schools are the principal, which is like a basketball coach, if you will, or a baseball coach, uh, and teachers in whose hands we trust quite literally the future of your child. And teachers don't get the respect, the attention, the financial reward they deserve. Uh, and I work very hard to get not just the Cal State system, but the UC system to uh, train teachers for medial training as well as uh, training, diagnostic training. Test scores went up all five years I was governor. We put in a high school graduation exam. We did a lot of things to uh, get schools on the right track. Do they still have a whole long ways to go? Yes. Uh, you do need a combination of guidance from on high and flexibility at the local level. Should a mayor be involved to some extent in the governance of a school system? Yeah, I think in some way. We can argue over how, but a mayor is a big deal. He or she can bring a lot of resources, get the private community to donate and get involved and parents are the indispensable ingredient. A principal, a good teacher, and an involved parent, you will have a successful school. Thank you, governors. More questions for the governors from the audience when we come right back. Back to the uh, California Governor's Summit. We are at the uh, Dorothy Chandler Pavilion tonight, and we have more questions from the audience. The first question comes from Michael Alexander, and it's for Governor Gray Davis. The topic is energy. Knowing what we now know about Enron's attack on California, how would you have handled the crisis they perpetuated? Uh, I would suggest everyone see the movie called Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Through a variety of lawsuits uh, from the federal government and from creditors' committees, uh, we now have Enron traders on tape just ordering plants going down. Uh, I, I think the, the fundamental flaw in the entire energy uh, crisis was a legislation that was passed uh, uh, prior to my governorship. Every legislator voted for it. It seemed like the right thing to do at the time. But it said to utilities, sell half your power plants and the state won't regulate the power plants that you sell. Have no jurisdiction over them. They can sell power to Nevada or Arizona, or they can sell it to us, do whatever they want. Uh, but people are so confident that the market system would force those plants to behave properly that they said fine. And only a handful of people bought those plants, and we know they manipulated them and greatly increased the price of electricity to all of you. Uh, and I felt like I had two hands behind my back. The only person legally who could do something about it was the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in Washington. They chose to look the other way. What would I have done differently? Unless I had the facts, which I had now, there's not a lot I could do differently except explain more clearly to the people of the state the dilemma we were facing. I couldn't explain it to the people, and it was my fault and probably the reason why I left office. 
Thank you. Our next question is from Adrena Gregorian. It's for Governor Brown and it's higher education. Good evening, Governors. How do you expect to increase access to education? As you said, that would help the economy when um, higher education in particular is experiencing increasing tuition costs and ongoing budget cuts. Well, I don't, and I don't agree with those uh, increases. I know they say that uh, to maintain quality, they got to raise the fees, and uh, I just think that's wrong. And uh, this is another, because first of all, uh, how did Ca California did it? for, I don't know, 100 years where you had tuition at UC was, when I went there, it was like $120. and my mother went, went there, it was $60 a semester, and then started going up. But even recently, five, six years ago, it was still a few thousand, and now they're going to move it up to 15, 20,000, particularly in the graduate schools. That is a radical departure from the free education philosophy that built California. I think it's wrong. I don't think they ought to be doing it. Our next question is for Governor Duke Majin. It comes from Chris Taylor, and it has to do with the environment. Governor, what's it going to take to get Washington to work with California on environmental protections instead of fighting us all the way? Well, I you know, I think over the years, it just depends upon um, the relationships that exist between the administration in Washington and the administration in California. At times, there's been you know, a lot of cooperation. There's been a lot of uh, support at other times. Uh, there, there may not have been. And I, I suppose that the only way that you can try to ensure as nearly as possible uh, that California is treated equally and, and gets the resources it needs and so on is for our congressional delegation uh, to work better together than, than it has over the years. Unfortunately, uh, California's congressional delegation is not known for being uh, unified and is not known for uh, cooperating uh, with each other to the extent that a lot of other states uh, do. But you start out with uh, certain environmental policies by whoever is the sitting president and the sitting administration in, in Washington, and then you have uh, whoever the administration is in California. Sometimes they're on the same wavelength, sometimes they're not. But uh, again, all of us, I don't care who you are, I don't care what political party you belong to, all of us want to live uh, in this great state uh, with the highest quality of life as possible. We want to try to preserve as much as we can uh, the natural resources and, and treasures that we have in our state. Uh, but I also think that, again, getting back to an earlier question about the economy and about job creation, uh, you've got to do that in connection with a balanced approach. Earlier it came up about housing. Uh, much of the cost of housing today is because of the high costs of permits and uh, the, the results of, again, a lot of uh, regulation, some of it in the environmental field. But you've got to have a balanced approach, otherwise uh, this isn't going to work. Thank you very much. Our next and final question is from Jim Lynch. It's for Governor Wilson, and it has to do with health care and mental health. Yes, Governor Wilson, we have a growing health care crisis in the state, and my question is simple. How would, would you propose to fix our health care system in California? Did you say your question was simple? <laughs> <laughs> Question's brief, but the answer is probably complex. 
You can state the question simply. Uh, the answer is difficult because what you have is a competition for health care dollars that embraces any number of different afflictions that we want to address, that we want to address both preventively because that is both more humane and a great deal more cost effective. The same thing can be true obviously for mental illness as well. It is like most health care, not cheap. And the thing that I think that we have to bear in mind is that those civilizations, those countries that have sought to have a single-payer system, whatever their good intentions, have wound up having inferior health care. And an example of that is very near at hand, our good neighbor Canada. Um, people come from Canada to the United States for health care. And the idea that we can import cheaper prescription drugs will very quickly be revealed by the Canadians as unworkable from their standpoint. So I think what we have to do is be realistic when we are in fact by legislation mandating costs upon private sector providers who are inevitably and inescapably a part of the health care system and should be. And there is a significant difference between fraud, which a minority of health care providers engage in and should be punished for, and the legitimate concerns on the part of not only providers but those who are seeking to regulate them that we do not impose such a financial burden that in fact some of them disappear or make the premiums unaffordable to small business owners who want to provide health care coverage to their employees. That is the balance that is difficult to achieve. It is very complex. It is very difficult. It does have to be addressed. But I think we have to be careful that our good intentions don't prove counterproductive because it's quite easy to, for that to occur and the evidence is all around us. Governor, thank you very much. We'll be right back after this break. We've asked each of the governors to come up with specific reforms to improve governing here in California. Governor Davis, let's begin with you. What specific reform would you like to see? Well, all of us have to deal with the state budget. I know people's eyes glaze over when you mention it, but it's the single most important document a governor and the legislature work on, allocates all the money for education and all our other priorities. Invariably, it's late. The first two years, my budgets were on time, and then they were average about a month late. I believe that we need to get our work done on time, both as an example to the rest of the public and private sector, and also because the rest of the public sector, in many cases, is waiting for us to decide how much money they get. And I think the way to get that done is to tell every legislator and every governor, every day the budget is late, you lose, you forfeit a day's pay. If the budget is 30 days late, you forfeit 30 days. And I say that as a governor who did not have a lot of personal wealth. 
<laughs> so I knew I would have a little skin in the game. But I think you ask us to do an important job, we ought to take it seriously. I think this will help make sure it gets taken very seriously. Thank you. Governor Wilson. I would agree, but only if the loss is permanent. Yeah, that's what I mean. You don't get it back. So <laughs> you, goodbye. It's not a paid suspension, it's a loss. Goodbye. That's right, exactly. That, by the way, that reform, which I regard it as being, was first on the ballot in 92 in an initiative measure that I put there with some help, and it was defeated by a vote of, well, through a campaign that was against it, it was largely financed by public employee unions. Well, let's put it on again and see what happens. I, I agree, with sufficient money to actually tell people what they're voting for. Um, if I could have but a single reform, it would be the one I mentioned earlier, where those who are compelled to make involuntary contributions no longer do so. Let me tell you the, the ugliest part of that is that as the public employee unions have grown with the growth of government at all levels, which they eagerly support, it has meant more and more dues to the public employee unions, which they use to do what they've done to Governor Schwarzenegger for the last four months, spent about $16 million <laughs> trashing him with ads that are simply dishonest. They did that to Governor Duke Majin. They did it to me. They probably did it to you, Jerry. I don't know. But in any case... No, some of your friends did it to me. <laughs> I'll bet they're your friends now. <laughs> Everybody let, me, let me just say, and the other thing that they do, and frankly, I think this is very serious, they have money to spend on the election campaigns of people running for city councils, for the board of supervisors, for local school boards. We used to believe in local control. Frankly, it has been largely corrupted in too many instances. <laughs> I'll give you just a couple of examples. One in the city of San Diego where there is a huge unfunded pension liability. The other is at the state level, where in five years, from 2000 to 2005, we have seen a 1,600% increase in the unfunded liability of the state pension system. That's a hell of a thing to ask working taxpayers to finance. And it's far, far beyond what anyone in the private sector can look forward to receiving in their pension system. Thank you, Governor Wilson. Governor Duke Majin. Uh, as most people know, we have a redistricting system. Uh, every 10 years after the census and the legislature is got the has the responsibility to redraw district lines for their own assembly, their own Senate districts, and for congressional districts. It is uh, an inherent uh, conflict of interest type situation. Uh, that redistricting uh, should be done by uh, some independent body, retired justices or some, some other uh, group. And the reason for all of that is that we don't have competition in these assembly, senate, and congressional districts. And without true competition, where you've got so many safe districts, you've got too many legislators who are so confident that they have no problem in getting reelected that they don't necessarily uh, want to do the public's bidding, but instead are responding to those interest groups that they're looking to 
for the next step in the political ladder. So we really need to change the redistricting. I think this would help tremendously uh, with a lot of other activity that flows from that, whether it's the budget or any number of other issues. Governor Brown. Well, I'd set up a committee of the four former governors. Let us, might as well grab as much power as we still can <laughs> get hold of. We could probably do the districts. We would have to compromise. Two Democrats, two Republicans. Probably better than judges. And uh, that would be worked out. Uh, then there's something well, I think we all do agree on. Let uh, Republicans and Democrats vote in each other's primaries or some form of creating a wider constituency instead of just the members of your own party, because that tends to polarize everybody either on one side or on the other. Um, but I do want to say this. I don't think there's any silver bullet that exists, and the ones that do are rather unpopular. But I think the only way we can get it, there's just little adjustments you make. There's so many groups on each side, and there are people who, from the right, the, the left, or this public employees, corporate people. I, I mean, if Pete wants to take the unions out of, out of the, the funding business, I'd say, okay, if anybody above the 75th percentile in income can no longer give contributions, then that might be a balance and take out. Anyway, those are the ones who give. I think the most important thing is to get the divergent groups talking in a serious way because no one group can really control the state. And, and I think what we need is some give and take on all sides. And that's basically what the leader has to do. But the leader isn't, can't do it all by himself. So I want to create a privy council of these uh, four ex-governors. And we will be given the authority and the prominence to give advice and consent to the activities of the governor and the legislature. Governors, thank you for your insight and all your experience. Listening to a special broadcast of Zocalo with former governors Gray Davis, Pete Wilson, George Duke Magian, and Jerry Brown, speaking about their experiences in the State House with NBC4's Colleen Williams. The Los Angeles Public Library and Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA, present this monthly series. Zocalo thanks for their support. Semper Law Group, Washington Mutual, the Los Angeles Times, the James Irvine Foundation, the Reardon Foundation, LAobserve.com the Library Foundation of Los Angeles, and 89.3 KPCC, Southern California Public Radio. And thanks to the Music Center, the Los Angeles Economic Development Corporation, the Annenberg Foundation, and Bank of America for making this special program possible. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit zocalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Thank you for joining us.